Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the National Trust podcast. I'm Sean Douglas, senior podcast producer at the National Trust, and today I'm heading to the Northwest to visit a National Trust house in Liverpool. However, rather than one of the sprawling country piles or mansion houses the Trust is famous for, today I'm being shown around what at first glance may look like an unremarkable terraced house on an unremarkable suburban street. That's until you meet its rather remarkable former resident. Twenty fourth in Road in Allerton, Liverpool. The little two up, two down brick terrace house, a very important house in my life. Walking down the garden here, I have gone back a million years. Just at the outside of this ordinary home, suddenly has gathered a large collection of people and they're all taking photographs of this house. Where are you lot from? Essex. Welcome to Liverpool. I am now going to take you around this magic little home. I was 12 years of age when I came to this house and it was big. When you come back as a 78-year-old man, the dimensions change into the front parlour. First of all, you see a piano. Then, as you glance around the room, the fire was so important. In the winter, this house could get very cold. Then we have two armchairs. My brother and I would sit there. Fawcett and Rhodes' former resident invites me to sit down in those very chairs. My name is Peter Michael McCartney, a satirical comedy actor, singer, writer and photographer. Before we continue with Michael's story, there's one thing we should all get a little better acquainted with, and that's the wonderful and varied vernacular of Liverpool slang. So firstly, sound. Sound means you're cool. Your sound, your dead sound. And boss? Boss, same thing. And then there's chocker. Chocker? That means it's full, it's chocker full. And finally, arkid. Oh, arkid is Liverpool slang for my brother or sister. So you can probably work out that to Mike McCartney, our kid is his big brother, Paul McCartney. And although you may think you know the story of the McCartney's fame, screaming fans, TV appearances, catchy tunes and visual art, the story of the McCartney family at 24th and Road is a story you've likely never heard before. Go back about 100 years, Liverpool's extremely wealthy, extreme wealth to all of a sudden World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. This is Dale Roberts, manager at Liverpool's Magical Mystery Tour. Liverpool is one of the most blitz cities in the United Kingdom, outside of London. Living in the 1950s meant no indoor plumbing, rationing is still underway. The NHS doesn't come into full effect just yet. There's certain parts of Liverpool that have got the lowest life expectancies in the northwest of England at this point. Like many working class families in Liverpool at the time, life for the McCartneys was a struggle. Like everyone else, in Liverpool, all we did was just survive. In Liverpool, still to this day, we take pride in being a hard-working city. 
not, not afraid to grind, not afraid to work hard. These guys have not got full workers' rights. They're working 40 plus hours a week to make ends meet. At this time, Paul and Michael's dad, Jim, was a factory worker and their mother, Mary, was working grueling and unsociable hours as a midwife. Hello? In the middle of the night, she mm-hmm. would get a call, get up. Yeah, OK, I'm on my way now. And getting onto her bike, her strap her medical bag on the back. Leaving in the middle of winter, snowing, belting down with rain to deliver babies all over speed. Oh, my mum, strong-willed. Mum was determined. She wanted us to get on in life. So Mary was determined to move her family from the poor quality housing of Roach Avenue in the inner city neighbourhood of Speak. Roach Avenue, all this prefab estate. Remember the roof banging with the rain was on it. From there, Mary was able to move her family a little further out of the city centre. Then we moved into Sir Thomas White Garden, which is a big tenement block. So from the city centre tenement block to 72 Western, yeah, it was terraced house with a little garden in front. Then 12 Ardwick, front garden, back garden. And then here, fourth in bigger garden front, bigger garden back, overlooking a big field. It's through Mary's sheer determination that the McCartneys could call this modest terrace suburban council house their happy home for many years to come. The drive that she had, a decision she made, was quite revolutionary. And it was at Fortheland Road that Mike's relationship with his mother really started to blossom. I was awkward. I would go head on into life. I think I used to get on my dad's wick. But Mum could direct me very cleverly into calming down. She really had sussed me out. But on the 31st of August 1956, at the age of just 47, Mary McCartney passed away due to complications during surgery for breast cancer. For me personally, it was, it's like having the mat whipped from underneath you. There was somebody that knew me, knew how to deal with me, So having that taken away was devastating. Equally to my brother and to my dad. Only people that have had personal bereavement and it's, you know, devastated them, understand. I'm a 12-year-old kid. When things like that happen to you, you don't talk, because talking is irrelevant. While grieving himself, Mike and Paul's dad, Jim, knew he needed to do something to soothe his boy's pain. And in this moment of need, he turned to something that had helped him in the past. Music. He used it for a therapy for himself. Before Mum died, whenever he came home on a hard day at the office, he would simply go to the piano and tinkle the ivories. He would play songs like Stairway to Paradise. Dun, 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 dun. And what was his other song? He, he wrote a song on this piano called Walking in the Park with Eloise. 
Recognising how music had helped him heal himself, Jim wanted to introduce his boys to the wonderfully healing world of music. To get your minds off it, here's a guitar, here's a banjo. And our kid, he got his guitar and went into it. I was learning banjo. But one day Mike walked into the back room and saw something that pushed all thoughts of becoming a banjo player firmly to the back of his mind. I walked in. They were here in this room, just there. I just sat on them and them. I took to them very easily. Uh, forget the bloody banjo. I'm going on the drums, much better. That was great. Bang, bang, bang. It was around this time when Mike and Paul met John Lennon. And this is when a band you're likely to know started to take shape. You guessed it, the Quarrymen. John and his first group were called the Quarrymen. They came here and rehearsed. The Quarrymen were a skiffle band created by John and some of his school friends. But by 1957, with some changes to the lineup, the Quarrymen's musicians started to look a little more familiar. John, Paul, then later George came uh, and uh, used to drum for them. Essentially, that was the start of the Beatles and, and you were the drummer. Yeah. But Mike's stint as the Quarrymen's drummer was short-lived, following a mischievous endeavour that went slightly wrong. My brother and I were in the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys Scout Group. And so we went to a campsite in Hathersage outside Sheffield. At the top of the cliff was the scout tents. Down below were the wood for the fires. Being scouts, somebody thought of this pulley system. You tie the wood onto this and then pull it back up. After a while, Michael grew tired of running up and down the hill to load and unload the pulley system. So he came up with an ingenious idea. Why don't one of us get on it? Me, I'll do it. So they, we tried it very slowly. Now, can we get it a bit faster? So let me. It's catching up speed. And our kid suddenly realised he's going to go into an tree and stop the thing. The only little problem is, it didn't stop me, but flew off the thingy. Bang! Right into the oak tree. <laughs> this could only happen to me. Broke my arm, paralysed hand. Michael's injury meant he'd never play the drums again. When I came back from hospital, my brother has stuck a notice on my drum kit saying, eh Beatles. In the end, this accident was a blessing in disguise, 
as it would push Michael towards the art form that would ultimately become his career. I learnt the joy of photography. So tell me about first picking up a camera. What was it like? Oh, well, first of all, you didn't pick up cameras. The only reason you took photographs, if you had a wedding or a birthday, then it was justified. It's expensive, so I had to be very careful. One day, I looked out the back window of our house, and over the garden were these seagulls. I just thought, wow, they're big. And so I thought, if I go upstairs, get the family Kodak, take a couple of pictures, Dad'll never know. So Michael took the family's precious camera to the garden and pointed the lens skyward. Climbed onto the roof of the shed outside, waited for one to come back, then... Click. This would be amazing. So go down to the chemist and get the filmer. I was expecting to see enormous big seagull swooping down, nearly knocking my eyes out. But when he looked at the prints, there was a problem. The photos he'd taken were nowhere to be seen. Why I couldn't see my giant albatrosses is because there's two little ditty dots on the page. I suddenly thought there's more to photography than meets the eye. Michael was determined to master this frustrating but rewarding art form. Got on the 86 bus, went up to Allerton Library, got all the books. Michael had started his magical mystery journey into the wonderful world of photography. Get your film, put it in a developer, fixer, and then water, and swizzle it round, and you buy these little prints. Do the light on it, and slowly appearing from nothing. There's your father on a print. It is magic. The fourth in road, the magic was there in my back bedroom. So Mike and Paul set off on their respective artistic paths. Paul with music and Michael with photography. And it just so happens that in 1950s Liverpool, an explosion of art, music and youth culture would mean the brothers were in the perfect place at the perfect time for them to hone their chosen forms of artistic expression. There's a transition between jazz, wartime, Doris Day, Vera Lynn songs, which then leads to rock and roll. Globally, rock and roll changes everything. The country is still very religious. People don't believe that beat is morally right. All of a sudden, the parents are scared they're losing control of their kids, dancing all over cinema halls. Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, and of course, Little Richard. Little Richard, for God's sake. His voice was gritty. I can't do it. Had you heard anything like it before? Never. Never. Don't think anybody had. When you first hear that, it is so shocking and so different and so exciting. Out of another world. 
And of course, those days, you only heard it on things like Radio Luxembourg. Once again, Jim was there to aid his boy's immersion into the inspiring world of music. Dad got one wire from the radio, up to our bedrooms, and then divide one side for Michael and one side for Paul. Dad found headphones so each of us could listen to this dream land. It was Hollywood, it was a dream. It was one that you could never be part of. You would love to be. But little did the boys know that the sound of Hollywood and New Orleans would be coming to Liverpool and that they would be front and centre of the UK's capital of rock and roll. The same as in New Orleans, you go down a street and you hear a band and you think that band could fill a stadium, they're that good. The city's clubs, basements and even church halls were grooving to the sound of Liverpool bands covering the hottest rock and roll tracks from the US. But with everyone playing the same music, it became difficult to stand out from the crowd. They all tried to outdo each other. The whole thing was to beat the other groups. So to raise their profile, bands started to do something unthinkable. There was this outrageous idea. The idea of writing your own stuff was outrageous. That was the new era. They'd have whole sets of their own songs. People would come just for them. Songs that they'd never heard and, and they get to love them. It became its own music. Mercy Beat. The Mercy Beat sound, it's distinctive. It has a very heavy beat. It gets the foot tapping. Dale Roberts from Liverpool's Magical Mystery Tour again. It was an exciting sound. It wasn't songs about the grind, songs about working hard. It was optimistic, upbeat music. Songs about love, about excitement. That's what the Mercy Beat sound was. Classic rock and roll, given a Liverpool twist. Of the dozens of venues that popped up around the city to cater for this new British take on rock and roll, the Cavern was by far the most famous. My name is Janet McCormack and I was at the Cavern Club in 1962. It was just dark, not terribly clean, but very exciting. Playing the Cavern Club almost 300 times, the Beatles essentially became the Cavern's resident band. Bearing in mind I was so young, I certainly couldn't go at night, but most of the Beatles sessions were at lunchtime, so I left school in my lunch break. There was a passage going into the cavern, and then we went down the steep steps. We had to rush to the front, and I was usually lucky enough to be on either the front row or the second row, and then out they'd come on stage from the dressing room. The music was so vivacious and loud and raucous. And my mother always said it was Paul McCartney that caused me to fail my GCEs. Although that's a bit unfair on him. <laughs> but the Cavern Club was about more than just the Beatles. During the 60s, the good and the great of the Mersey Beat scene graced the Cavern stage. The searchers, Jerry and the pacemakers, the first all-female rock and roll band, the Liverbird. Scylla Black collected the coats on the door. She'd go on to become the best-selling female vocalist of the 1960s. And while Paul was on stage influencing Merseybeat culture from behind his guitar, 
from behind his lens, Michael was capturing what would become some of music history's most important moments. Many of the photos Michael shot and developed at Fawthorn Road can be found in his 2021 publication, Mike McCartney's Early Liverpool. Michael has a copy of this book and opens it up to show me one of those iconic Cavern Club images. This is down the uh, cavern, you can see the arches. Downstairs, got full of kids who wanted to dance in the side bits. The piano they used to rehearse on there. You go to the other end for your Coca-Cola because the cavern didn't sell alcohol. And then to the right, you see a little girl, just make out a little girl. That was the cloakroom, and that's where Scylla Black used to get the coat. As the Beatles start to outgrow the tiny confines of the Cavern Club, they'd start appearing on the same billings as some of the American artists they idolised while listening to Radio Luxembourg through their tinny headphones. Michael shows me an image taken after one of these occasions just after a performance at Liverpool's New Brighton Tower Ballroom. I love this photo. It's after a gig. Our kid has got a towel. In their leathers particularly, they sweated like pigs. John's hair is all sleeked back because of the sweat. Looking at us with a cheeky, daft smile. Our kid has got his shirt off and his hair's all muscled. He looks a bit like uh, Sylvester Stallone. Pete Best is doing a daft goon face with his hands down, just looking at George in a daft, silly way. And then nipple shooting George, because George is pointing to our kid's nipples. What's important to me about this is this sums up the way they were. It was fun, it was light-hearted, it was just a bit of fun. By 1964, the two had found fame and commercial success. Paul with the Beatles, who were just about to embark on their first global tour. And as well as photography, Michael had returned to music as one-third of the satirical comedy pop group, The Scaffold. But with the constant presence of fans outside their modest council house, it was time to bid farewell to 24th and in Road. Did you feel sad leaving this place? Because it must have held great memories as well. When we came into this house, we had a mum. When we left, we didn't have a mum. That's the biggest impact we had here. But to go from a little poor house to a posh bigger house with central eating, for God's sake, carpets everywhere... We're thinking of the positive aspect. Yeah, but I guess the nostalgia of this place is, is immense. You know, I mean, would it be fair to say this room is where the world changed? Now it's assumed a far greater significance. Once again, Michael picks up his book and flicks through the pages. This is page 185. It's a picture of... Our kid and John, that's two of the most famous people in musical history, rehearsing a song that they have composed in this very room. The notepad on the floor is from my brother's school book. And so he had lots of his songs in that book. If you turn this photograph upside down, you can clearly see I saw her standing there not because 
the first bit has been crossed out. So originally it wasn't I saw her standing there. Originally it was they saw her standing there, he saw her standing there, she saw him standing there, whatever it was, it's crossed out. So you see in this book, the original song was not called as I was standing there. There's only three people in the world that would know that song. Do you remember the Hamilton thing? Have you ever seen Hamilton? No. We've been. And my wife, Rowena, said, that picture you took of your kid and John rehearsing like the Hamilton line, no one else was in the room where it happened. And you suddenly realize, oh, sometimes your point in history is fascinating. Fascinating, this things that you don't think are important. The catalyst that started all this worldwide fame business, we were the only three in the room where it happened. <laughs> and then you suddenly realize you're part of history in a different context. Michael's photos are responsible for saving some of musical history's most poignant moments to print. And they're also what helped convince the National Trust to preserve the McCartney's childhood home as a piece of built history. As when the property was offered to the National Trust, after years of modernisation in the private sector, the Trust were less than enthusiastic about taking it on. Double glazing, posh kitchen, posh carpets, and the wallpapers, all posh. But it was when the Trust saw Michael's images of what 24th and Road looked like in the 50s and 60s that opinions started to change. They thought, ah, now we can do something about it. We can turn this house <coughs> into what it used to be. Thanks to Michael's photography, 24th and Road has become a place of memories where people come to reminisce about their childhoods, about the music of their youth, and to connect with the stories of their parents and grandparents. So I wanted to know what Michael's most cherished moment from Fourth Room Road is. God, the favourite memory. Oh my God, what a, what a question. When we first moved to this house in 1956, it was cold. And the only place in this house that was warm was this room, the front parlour, with the fireplace in it. We would have our bath upstairs. We'd have to have baths together, my brother and I, because it was cheaper. The big thing was to run downstairs and get here first. It was always the elder brother that got done first. So you'd wait, uh, shivering with your towel over you. Then me with my wetter would go kneel on that carpet there and mum would tousle your hair in front of the fire till it got dry. So that's a lovely memory for me. hope you've enjoyed this episode of the National Trust podcast. To learn more about Fawthorne Road or Mendips, which is the childhood home of John Lennon, also in the care of the National Trust, just search for Beatles Childhood Homes on the National Trust website. Subscribe or follow this podcast so you don't miss the latest updates. 
And if you'd like to leave feedback on this podcast, just leave us a review or message us directly on social media. You can also email us on podcasts at nationaltrust.org.uk. There'll be a new episode with you soon. But for now, from me, Sean Douglas, goodbye.